Strange stories are my business, and stories don't get much stranger than they do at Halloween, that eerie time of year that is always special for those of us who love the supernatural, true crime, and horror. This year, more than any other year I can ever remember, we all need a distraction. So we wanted to make sure that our listeners had a creepy episode of the podcast to listen to every week in October. We started this extra project with just two bonus stories of Los Angeles that we didn't plan to include in the regular Haunted Hollywood season of the podcast, but we changed our minds. We're actually going to be giving you five bonus shows this month, plus our annual Halloween show on October 30th. So be sure to check out the podcast feed between October 27th and October 30th for some new haunting and horrific content. For this time, we have a weird little tale of sex, obsession, and murder that's sure to chill your blood and probably have you making sure the door to the attic is locked before you go to bed tonight. For years, Fred Osterich was convinced that his house was haunted. It was the noises, strange noises in the attic, like someone walking around. But each time he mentioned it to his wife, Dolly, she assured him there were no such things as ghosts. The sounds were either his imagination or some overly active mice. But Fred couldn't shake the odd feelings. It was so strange, he thought, that the mysterious bumps in the night had followed him and Dolly not only through four houses in Milwaukee, where Fred had run a large apron sewing company, but to three more houses in Los Angeles, where the couple had moved in 1918. Well, as it turned out, badly for Fred, he wasn't a very curious man. He may have grumbled about the noises and the occasional disappearing items, but he never did anything about it. He never checked the attic. If it was a ghost, well, he was just content to live with it. Dolly, whose given name was actually Walburga, yikes, wasn't surprised. Her husband was not an imaginative man. He also wasn't a very nice one either. Dolly was usually lonely, but most of the time feeling neglected was preferable to Fred's company. He liked to drink, and when he did, he was often violent. When our story really begins in 1913, the Osterichs were a wealthy, very unhappy couple who were about to celebrate their 15th wedding anniversary. It started innocently enough in Milwaukee when Dolly told Fred that her sewing machine was broken. Fred sent over a mechanic from the factory to fix it, a 17-year-old named Otto Sanhuber. Otto was a small man, just standing a little over five feet tall. He had a receding chin, buggy eyes, horn-rimmed glasses, and a bad case of acne. Well, the nervous young man fell madly in love with Dolly Osterich. Well, it wasn't long before she had seduced Otto and he became a regular sight around the Osterich house, doing odd jobs and chores around the place for Fred. Every time that Dolly's sewing machine broke down, she'd call Fred at work and tell him to send Otto over. When he arrived, Dolly would greet him at the door, wearing nothing but stockings and a silk robe. Well, after a while, Fred got tired of seeing Otto hanging around the house when he came home and told him to stop coming over. As far as Fred was concerned, when Otto vanished after this confrontation, the matter was closed. He and Dolly continued their sour relationship, moving several times while they lived in Milwaukee. Around the end of World War I, Fred began scouting Southern California as a new location for an apron factory. He and Dolly moved to Los Angeles in 1918 and expanded the business. As he became more successful, the size of their houses grew and they moved to larger and larger homes in better neighborhoods over the next few years. Fred often complained about the high cost of living in LA, especially when he saw the size of their grocery bill. 
The prices certainly seem much higher than they did in the Midwest. But Dolly just shrugged her shoulders and dismissed his grumbling, just like she did when he talked about the weird noises in the attic of every single home they lived in. But Fred wouldn't complain much longer. On the night of August 22, 1922, the Beverly Hills police were called to the Osterick home by neighbors after they heard several gunshots and a woman screaming. When officers arrived, they found Fred lying on the living room floor. He'd been shot three times by a 25 caliber automatic. The gun, the coroner later said, had been fired at very close range. There were signs of a struggle in the room and an unlatched French door suggested that the murderer had left the house in a hurry. The police found Dolly inside of a locked walk-in closet. The key was found in another room. She told investigators that she was hanging clothes in the closet when she heard a fight downstairs. As she tried to see what was happening, the closet door was slammed in her face and locked. She never got a good look at the killer or killers, so she couldn't provide them with a description. As detectives searched the house, they found that it was disturbed, but there really didn't seem to be anything missing except for Fred's diamond-studded watch. Well, this seemed odd. They were also confused about why a burglar would carry such a small pistol, a gun that, quote, was more likely to be found in a lady's purse. Equally curious were the statements of neighbors who said they heard Fred and Dolly having a heated argument after the couple returned from an evening out. Dolly was questioned, but she offered no leads. Yes, she and Fred fought frequently and loudly, but she certainly had nothing to do with his murder. Unable to catch her in a lie, the police sent her home. They tried to run down new leads looking for anything in Dolly's background that might have led her to kill her husband, but they found nothing. No one who knew the couple or was friendly with the, either Fred or Dolly could shed any light on the crime. They often bickered in public, but no one had ever seen things turn violent. Well, with no weapon and the main person of interest with a solid alibi of being locked in a closet, the case went on the back burner. No one was willing to drop it, but there were just no more leads. Detectives would have to wait and see if anything new turned up. And about a year later, it did. Captain Herman Klein dropped in on Herman Shapiro one day. Shapiro was the attorney handling Fred's $1 million estate. He wanted to go over some details with him one more time. On Shapiro's desk, Klein saw a shiny, diamond-studded wristwatch. When Klein asked him about it, Shapiro innocently admitted that it had been a gift from Dolly. Shapiro thought a watch just like it had been stolen from Fred on the night he'd been killed, but Dolly said he was mistaken. She'd found the watch under a couch cushion in the living room, she said, and well, she wanted him to have it. When the newspapers heard about this latest development, they had a field day with it. The news stories prompted two informants to come forward, both with evidence against Dolly. Each man had disposed of a small caliber pistol for her. One of the guns was later found in the La Brea tar pits, and the other was found hidden under a rose bush at the man's house. But Dolly had an explanation for this, an unbelievable one, but still it was an explanation. She said that the guns were old things she'd kept around the house for years, and she decided to get rid of them because, considering the circumstances of her husband's death, they might be embarrassing. Well, it was embarrassing, all right, because the discovery of the guns led to Dolly being arrested for Fred's murder in July 1923. But even so, she still wasn't talking. Investigators badgered her relentlessly about her story, but they had no success. They tried everything they could to link her to the crime, but without more hard evidence or a confession, there was nothing they could do. The murder charges had to be dismissed. 
Seven years passed and the case was forgotten and gathering dust when the Beverly Hills police got a strange phone call from the attorney, Herman Shapiro. He and Dolly had been involved in a relationship but had since had a falling out. The attorney had now decided he wanted to tell the police what he really knew about Fred's death. He also told them that he had a client who wanted to confess to murder. Detectives hurried over to the lawyer's office where they were met by Shapiro and an odd little man named Otto Sanhuber. The story that he told the police was a bizarre one, but to anyone listening who might be keeping track of the clues, you probably already have a pretty good idea of what went on at the Osterick house. It had started in Milwaukee in 1913 when Otto and Dolly began their passionate affair. After Fred told Otto to stop coming around the house, Dolly decided she wasn't ready to give up her lover. So instead, she secretly moved him into the attic of their home. While Otto didn't mind, he described himself as Dolly's, quote, sex slave. During the day, Otto made the beds, did housework and kitchen chores, and kept Dolly happy. He silently retreated to the attic each night when Fred came home from work. He lived a solitary life at night, reading murder mysteries by candlelight and writing stories that he hoped to sell to magazines. This arrangement continued for 10 years through seven moves, including one from Milwaukee all the way to Los Angeles, even though Otto had been reluctant to go to California. He wanted to join the army, but Dolly refused to let him. Otto said that on the night of August 22nd, 1922, he heard a loud drunken argument take place downstairs between Fred and Dolly. When he heard Fred start hitting his wife, Otto became enraged and left his attic room. Fearing for Dolly's safety and got a guess probably his own, he brought a small pistol with him to confront Fred. The undoubtedly startled husband recognized Otto as his former employee and the two men began to fight. They grappled with each other and in the struggle, or so Otto claimed, Fred was shot three times. Dolly quickly took control of the situation and set the stage to look like a burglary. She opened the French door, disturbed the living room even further, and hid Fred's diamond watch, a watch she would foolishly give to her next boyfriend, Herman Shapiro. She then told Otto to vanish. In the years that followed, Dolly sold the house and moved to a luxury apartment where she lived comfortably off her late husband's money. Otto made it a life for himself, got married, and began working as a janitor. But Fred's murder weighed on him, and eventually, his guilt led him to contacting Shapiro. Dolly was again arrested for her husband's murder and sent to jail to wait for trial. Otto was tried first in 1930. At trial, he tried to get out of his confession, but without success. However, his case did have one last twist. The jury quickly convicted him, but not for murder. He was convicted of manslaughter instead. At that time, the statute of limitations for manslaughter was seven years, and Fred's murder had occurred eight years before Otto was brought to trial. There was nothing the court could do to him. The district attorney didn't argue with the jury, and the judge let Otto go free. Dolly's trial started a few months later, and she was defended by one of Hollywood's elite attorneys, Jerry Geisler, who had also defended such notables as Errol Flynn and Benjamin Bugsy Siegel. On the stand, Dolly blamed Otto for everything. The jury couldn't reach a verdict, and the case was declared a mistrial. The DA didn't bother to try her again. After their trials, Dolly and Otto went their separate ways. Otto's wife had stuck by him through everything, and Dolly just wanted to continue the luxurious life she was living. 
She lived to be 75, and she died in April 1961. She left her multi-million dollar estate to her business manager, who had married her two weeks before her death. One thing's sure, Dolly never had good taste in men. Whatever happened to Otto is unknown. He vanished from the pages of history after his trial, and apparently the, quote, ghost in the attic, as the newspapers called him, stayed out of trouble for the rest of his life. Thanks for listening to this bonus episode from the American Honeys podcast for the Halloween season of 2020, the scariest year ever. It was edited and produced by Cody Beck and written and performed by Troy Taylor. That's me. Have a happy and haunted Halloween season. <laughs>